Radio. Welcome to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast, where we help entrepreneurs like you build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. My name is Nicholas Jensen, bringing you the secrets behind the relationships, strategies, and mindset of the most successful people on the planet. Showing you how to collapse time frames in order to win at business, money, and the adventures of life. You don't know what you don't know, so I'm here to show how the wealthy live, think, and make their money grow. It's time to live the life that you deserve. I'm, I'm here to help. My, my name is Nicholas Jensen. And, and this is Unlimited Wealth. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to the Unlimited Wealth Podcast. My name is Nicholas Jensen. Hey, have you ever wondered how to properly scale a business? Well, my guest today, Bill Flynn, has done just that several times. He spent 25 years in the startup industry, scaled 10 different businesses, of which seven of those had successful outcomes. He's the author of Further Faster, The Vital Few Steps That Take the Guesswork Out of Growth. And today, he's going to share with us the secrets to properly scaling a business. So please help me welcome my guest, Bill Flynn. Hey, thanks for joining me on the podcast, Bill. Hey, great to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so we were just chatting uh, before the podcast got started, talking about you're over there in Massachusetts. Obviously, I'm, I'm here in Utah. I'm super interested in our discussion today revolving businesses. You've had a lot of experience in business and scaling businesses, and now you're con- you help consult businesses on how to scale and how to grow. So before we get started here, maybe just give my audience kind of that 10,000 foot overview of who you are, what you do, and a little bit of your background. Sure. So um, I started as a startup guy in my 20s. I did that for 25 years. I did 10 of them over that time. And I'm either five for seven or five for 10, depending on what you decide my contribution was after I left, because um, I, didn't, I didn't survive all of them. And then about four years ago, I became a coach. Uh, which means uh, a coach to me, I'm, I'm more of a teacher than a coach, but uh, to stay on the coaching side, I, I'm more of a, of a leadership team coach. So I work with the entire leadership team and I teach them a framework that helps them to grow their business in a healthy and thriving way by basically predicting their future through creating it themselves. Cool. So did you kind of come up with this model from your startup experience or is this a model that you've adapted from somebody else? Where did that model come from? Great question. Great question. And so you're the first person who ever asked me that. I'm, you're, I'm almost up to 50 podcasts. So good for you. Um, so there are 23 business operating systems that I have found today. There may be more, but so there are a ton of these things out there. When I became a coach, I looked at, I think it was about five or six uh, that sort of made sense to me. And then I had to pick one. So I narrowed it down to one. It's something called Scaling Up, which is based upon um, a book that was written about 25, 30 years ago called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. Uh, the author of that, his name is Vern Harnish. He also started organizations called EO and YPO a long time ago. Yeah, yeah okay. That stemmed from Birthing of Giants, which was an MIT thing about 20, 20 years ago, give or take. Yeah. I really liked it because it's a holistic view of the world. Um, and, and being a startup guy, you know, I sort of get that whole, you got to look at the whole thing and not just be really good at one thing or, or, or another. But since then, I have a adapted it a bit. Uh, I'd probably say I use about 60% of that. I throw in some other business bits of business operating systems. And some of it is sort of my own stuff, but very little is my own stuff. So it's really a, it's kind of a pastiche, if you will, of, of, of things, but mostly based upon one particular methodology. Can we kind of talk a little bit about your startup experience? Like, mm. was it just something that you kind of had an idea and you started one company and then that kind of evolved from there? Did you always kind of have the the idea that you were going to start businesses? Like how did, how did that come about? I'm super interested. I mean, I'm a business owner myself. I've owned a couple different businesses, but never a business at the scale of like, oh, I, 
I scaled this business and, and then we exited, you know, with, with massive profits and things like that, but more of just right. small businesses making really good money. You know, maybe I did sell one business off actually, but then, you know, just turned around and, and started another business, but, but nothing on a grand scale. So I'm super interested in kind of your methodology or your thought process behind uh, kind of being a startup sure. guy for 25 years. Yeah. So I, I admire um, people like you who are founders. I'm not a founder. Okay. Uh, I'm the scale up guy. So I'm, I come in after they, that the founder thinks he's or she's got something. And now they say, okay, we want to scale this thing. We want to sell it or we want to do whatever we want to do, right? IPO or buy or, or get acquired, whatever it may be. Um, the only business I've actually started myself is this one. Uh, oh, okay. I'm running now, which, which is a business of one, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my love of startups really, I th- I've been, I was been thinking about this for years. It's like, you know, why did I do that? I did 10. Uh, it's 10 is an unusually high number. Now, partly it was because I was successful. I'm sure if I had some really bad luck early on, I might've said, well, this was crazy and I should go back and work for someone else and yeah. go back to the sort of nine to five thing. But when I really look at it, I love puzzles. I love trying to figure stuff out. And that's really what a startup is. It is, uh, it is a journey of learning and exploration and mistakes and failure. And um, I really like that. I, I just found that fascinating, especially I, I was always the sales and marketing guy. So not only was I in, in, in a startup, I was at the tip of the spear, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the, two of the hardest jobs in a startup. It's not making the product because the guy who makes the product thinks it's awesome and everyone's going to buy it. It's, it's actually when you ask for the money. Yeah, yeah when you really find out if the thing's there. Um, so, and, and then going back to the founder and saying, okay, by the way, it's not as wonderful as you think. You know, maybe we need to move a little this way. And they're not always that open to that, yeah. <laughs> I've found, especially the last few. So I think that's it. I just love the idea. I love a clean sheet of paper. I love trying to figure, figure that out. So that's sort of my startup. That, that's, I think, the origin story of my startups. I just found that I, I loved it. Now, I did get with a, a bunch of people who I worked really well with. That helps a lot, right? When you have, yeah. when you have that trust. Yeah. Of, yeah. And we, we went, we did four startups together in a row. Oh. And that was three out of the, three out of four were successes, an IPO or acquisition or some sort of exit. It's probably a lot more fun when you're doing it with guys that you've either done it with before as well as you know that you just enjoy being around which reminds me of so i used to uh it's been 10 years ago i can't remember how long ago it's been a while ago i worked for td ameritrade it was a company that was acquired by another company it ended up being td ameritrade but when that acquisition happened and this is the first time that i really saw it in the corporate world and once i saw it i saw it happen a couple different times Mm-hmm. But when that acquisition happens, their guy comes in and then he brings in his three or four guys, right? Yep. And they turn the business around. And then I watched that same group go to another business. So that main guy, can't, he left that bit TD and he went to another business and he took his four guys and then they brought a couple more guys. And so it's just interesting. And then I, once I saw that pattern... I looked at a couple different businesses, not necessarily startups, but different businesses and saw that same pattern happening. So the question that I have is surely as you scale and grow companies, there's certain principles that are probably the same, even though that the business is different and the team may or may not be the same. Mm -hmm. There's gotta be a difference between 
from a data perspective or a science perspective, what we know versus what businesses actually do. There's got to be some type of gap there. Would you agree? And if so, what's that gap? Like, how, how do you kind of fill that gap? If you're a guy that's like, hey, I've got a good business. I'm wanting to scale. What I'm doing may not necessarily be working. Like, what should I be doing? Or what data should I be looking at? Sure. Uh, well, first, your, your statement is correct and the data backs it up in terms of, um, we know that most businesses die. Right. Uh, and the longer you're in business, the less chance you have of surviving the next year, which is, to me, fairly counterintuitive because you figure you're going to learn and get better, and, but we don't. Um, I, don't know, I don't know exactly why. I don't think anyone's figured that out. But, so I, I've looked at data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and the Small Business Administration. Uh, and generally, they line up pretty well. Um, if you start a business within five years, you have a 50% chance of being in business or not. After, so after 15 years, you have a 25% chance of being in business. And after 25 years, it goes down to about 16%, uh, which is horrible. That, that does seem horrible. But the first question that comes to my mind, is it because the business failed or the business operators or they've just decided to move on and do something else? Yeah, they haven't parsed the data to, to okay. yeah, because you could make a decision that you're done and, and whatever. But still, there are, there are, according to some data that I have in my book, there are approximately 150 million businesses started every year. In the world or the U.S.? In the world. Okay, 150 million. That's a lot of businesses. That's a lot of businesses, right? So, and those are probably the ones that are like legally started. Like we've actually filed the paperwork versus... Hey, I've just started a business out of the back of my house and yeah, actually, nothing's I don't really know. official yet. That's a good question. I don't know, I don't know where this, this particular researcher got her, her data from, um, but that's a lot of businesses. Now, most businesses are really small. Most businesses are one or two person things. Yeah. Like if you look at it, 50, 60% of businesses are fewer than like five people. There are very few really, really large, large businesses. Right. Um, so that's just the, one that, the ones that die. Now, we, can't, we don't know exactly how many are struggling. Many, many businesses struggle. They're just guessing and doing their best, and they're surviving through force of will, effort, luck, and timing. Uh, and that doesn't scale. Because eventually, you know, as you get bigger, you're just going to run out of time and energy to, to keep this thing going. It's like you're pulling this thing from, you know, behind you. And the bigger it gets, the more time and energy it takes to, you know, you said you go to the gym, right? Yeah. If, you, if you start putting more plates on, you could you can only do fewer reps, you know? <laughs> this is that's an goes. interesting perspective. Yeah, like that's the math, right? Like the more pressure, the fewer amount of reps you can do. And yeah. so it seems like... Yeah, I guess it would make sense. Business is kind of the same way, right? Exactly. So I've been studying business for about 30 years and really intensely in the last five or so, four or five. And what I've found is there is a pattern. The businesses that endure and thrive, and meaning generations and centuries, do a few things really, really well. And I've boiled it down to three things. One is what we already talked about is team. They understand that performance is a team sport. Um, and team is not a group of individuals. Team are team is uh, are people who have each other's back, who will put aside their own personal needs for the betterment of the team. If the if the team will suffer if they focus on their own their own stuff, so that's what you mean by a team, right? They they understand roles and responsibilities. They share the reward. They share the burden, and they they they're there for each other. 
So um, does that does that mean on that team, like in your experience, are each of those team members running in their own lane, or are they kind of helping each other in their own lanes? Because you you see that philosophy depending on who you talk to is like, you know, we want you C-suite to kind of do everything, like be able to do everything or, or know about everything versus no, like this is my lane. I swim in this lane. If you've got a question, I'm happy to like provide advice or, or um, my perspective, but like I'm responsible for this lane and this is the lane I'm swimming. When you talk about teams, have you seen a better result with one of those scenarios versus another? So you certainly have to have expertise, right? Uh, in, in a particular function, right? So the marketing guy knows more about marketing than anyone else, most likely. Um, you hope. <laughs> right. But, but if you think about, I mean, you've been in these businesses and, you, and you've got some businesses, it's, you know, there's, not, there's no silos. Everything sort of blends into each other and, and affects each other. Marketing makes sales easier, but the information that sales gets helps marketing get smarter. Right. Sales, right. sales, if sales sells whatever they want, then they kill operations. If operations, you know, doesn't really do their job, um, then the customer's unhappy, and then the salespeople have to go back and try to fix. So everything is sort of interconnected. So there's definitely this crossover. But but when I work with teams, I work with them on how to run the organization as one thing. So yes, they should all have a general knowledge of how the organization runs. How do we make money? How do we make decisions? How do we deal with change? Those basic things. Everyone should have some knowledge. But what makes a team is, so if we're on the same team and, you know, I have to feel like I have a good enough relationship with you to say, hey, you, Nicholas, you said you were going to do this stuff and you're not doing it. You're letting everybody down. Now, then I can take a number of approaches. How can I help you? Is there something going on? you just need a kick in the ass or do I, you know, is there something that's fallen off? Can I pick something up for you? Is there something going on at home? That's a teammate. That's what I mean by a teammate. They care about the whole as well as themselves. That makes sense. Yeah. And this, this is stuff like Pat Lencioni and Amy Edmondson, a lot of these sort of thought leaders on this of how to really make a really good team and really good teams can tell each, tell each other what, what some call the kind truth. Like kind of, having being able to have crucial conversations exactly to, to make progress. Yeah. So would you say that's the gap? The gap is how those teams function. Like, Hey, this is the data. This is kind of what we know should be happening. This is the, what we're actually doing. Is that the gap, the way that teams are functioning? That's one of the gaps. And that's a big one. If, if, uh-huh. so you can have a, a decent strategy or an awesome strategy. If you have a bad team, they're not going to execute well. Yeah. Cause they're just going to care about themselves uh, they're not going to hit deadlines. They're not going to hold each other accountable. Uh, and then that affects the other thing. So, so the three things team is, I think team is paramount. Uh, people do everything right. And, and according to some research, over 80% of us are in at least one team and about 70% of those people are in more than one team. So teams do a lot of stuff. Very few companies that last and, and do really well are run through the effort of one or two people or, or just people sort of doing their own thing in their own silo. It, 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 there's a crossover. So that's the one thing. Team, team is, is essential. The second is you need to run your business. If you want your business to scale, you have to think of it as a system. Uh, and you have to have repeatable practices in order for you to scale. Because if, if you're always doing, the, if you're always learning something new and changing on a regular basis, that just doesn't scale very well. 
So you have to know that strategy and execution are married to each other, and you have to have some kind of strategy. And when I talk about strategy with, with, with CEOs, at first I ask them, what is, what is your definition of strategy? And we have to align on one on that. What do we think a strategy is? Most people think it's a plan, and strategy is not a plan. A strategic plan comes out of thinking, which is your strategy. How do we differentiate ourselves in the marketplace? How do we combine three, four, five different things that are interdependent that work well together so we can be seen as the, op- the optimal choice for that particular kind of customer? Southwest is the greatest example right? They've been the most profitable public company, at least in US markets, for 50 years running. They have never not been profitable every single quarter for 50 years. I don't know if they've done the last couple of quarters. Maybe they've yeah, had a little interested interesting to see what that is. Um, and they're in an industry where their competitors are constantly battling to go out of business faster than other people so they can get money right. from the government. And they've, they've never done that. Um, and because they have a really unique strategy, right? Their strategy is about um, low, fill, low fares, lots of flights, lots of fun. But in order to be really low fare, they have to put us through a bunch of stuff, right? They make us sit in a cattle line. They feed you sugar and salt uh, on the thing. You can't pick your seat. You can't fly all the way to your destination. You generally have to go somewhere else. You can't go to the main airport. You have to go to the secondary airport because those gates are cheaper. So they yeah. put all these things in the way so they can keep those fares low, which make, which make them more profitable. So you have to have a decent strategy. It doesn't have to be awesome, but it has to be decent. And it has to be something that helps you to differentiate. Unique strategies are always better. You know, as I said, Southwest or McDonald's in the 60s and 70s, uh, Apple, Dyson, Nest, you know, these are unique strategies. It's hard to, you sort of build this moat. Then you have to execute with near perfection. And execution is really, it's really, of all the things that I teach, it's simple. It's only three things. It's what are the priorities? What are the most important things we have to do? How do we know when we did them well? And are we meeting on a regular basis to move them forward every time we meet? Now, we're decent at priorities. We are usually a little overzealous on metrics. We usually put too many. We really suck at meetings. We are horrible at meetings. Meetings are status updates and chest pounders, right? Meetings. I did all the stuff. I'm important. And that's not what a meeting should be. A meeting should be, how do we go from where we are forward? How do we get closer to our ultimate goal? Um, and so, so we're not really good at that. And if you do those two things well, or those really, because I, I, I see strategy and execution as one thing, just two sides of the same coin, because uh-huh. you're executing your strategy. So they're right. connected. Then you generate cash, and cash should be your primary financial growth metric for any business that wants to scale. Why? Because growth sucks cash, and cash is an antecedent to growth. You have to spend in front of growth. You have to hire people. You have to build factories. You have to do all these things in front. So you have to know how much it's going to cost. Then you should build your plan to generate cash. You can borrow, but assume you can do it yourself to pay for the stuff before you need it. We yeah. don't do that. We generate, we, we, we drive on revenue. We think revenue is great. Revenue is vanity. And this is a 30-year sales guy talking. Revenue is vanity. Are you Profit- talking, you're talking top line revenue, right? Yeah. It's vanity. Yeah, vanity. revenue is vanity. So when you're talking cash, are you are you talking? Are you referring? I just want to be clear to the audience. Are you talking net income cash, or just cash in general? Cash in the bank. Cash okay, is cash the, the only and your P and Ls and your P and L and your yeah, balance sheet. Yeah. Cash is the only thing on those lines that will not lie to you. You either have it or you don't. You so can you're make just talking profit. actual. Ca- what's my checking account balance? Whatever the wherever you're holding your cash for your. Business, yes. what's that balance? Exactly. I right. recommend, so for your listeners, you said they're small business owners. Here's what I recommend to do that is get a cash 
statement, not a cash flow statement, which is this big, long thing, a cash statement, which only has four things on it. How much did we start the week with? How much did we end the week with? How much did we make during the week? How much did we spend? And most of the time, you're going to get this and throw it away. But once in a while, you're going to say, what happened? Why is this week different? And that's when, that's when you see the problem. You get in front of the problem before it becomes a crisis. But we don't do that. We just assume everything's going well and we're making money, but stuff happens. Yeah. Um, so, so those are the three things. Team, the strategy execution system you got to build, and then make sure that you have cash as your financial growth metric, as your primary financial growth metric. So a, a couple questions I have coming off of that. So number one, priorities. How do you know what is the most important thing to focus on? Because Sometimes business can be like chasing squirrels, right? Mm. Shiny object syndrome. Yeah. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, you referenced the gym earlier. There's a lot of shiny objects in the gym, but really when you boil down to body composition and trying to do certain things from a health perspective, there's like a poor few things that you yeah. actually should be doing right. to get progress. Business is somewhat the same way. So the question is, what are those main priorities that no matter big, small, I was going to say fat or tall business, (laughs) what are the priorities they need to be focusing on that they need to be doing constantly? So um, it's always easier. So there's two things that I would always recommend. It's always easier to work backwards than it is to work forwards. So you should be thinking about, so the first thing I make all of my CEOs do, I give them two or three months to do it, is they have to write what I call a vivid vision. You have to write down what this thing looks like when you believe it's over, right? We've done it. We've made it. And you have to write it. It's usually three to five pages long, and it covers the whole business. So that gives everyone an idea of where we're going. Can I ask you a question? How far yeah. in the uh, how far out in the future are you asking them to project that? Is it three years, five years, 10 years, or just whenever you in your mind think we've arrived. That's what the vision, that's what I do. Three, three years. Okay. Uh, I've seen people do 10 year visions. I've seen people do 20 year visions. Um, Okay. So it really depends on on what you want to do. It's really hard to go out that far. Uh, I'm trying to get people to, 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 to create action and velocity. And so looking past three years, gets a little squishy, I think, especially these days. So I just have them doing three years. And then what we do is, is somewhere in the middle of year two, we write another three-year vision. So we're just okay. constantly writing visions. Yeah. But because you want to have followers. Followers want to know where you're going. You got to tell them where you're going. So once you do that, then you say, okay, great. We've got a three-year vision. What are we going to do this year that gets us closer to that three years? Okay, what are we going to do this quarter to get closer to that one year that gets us closer to the other? So that's the first thing you have to do is, is do that and work backwards. But the key is we, we too often spend time solving the problem that's right in front of us. If you want to make progress, you have to solve the problem that's creating the problem that's right in front of us. And if you keep moving back to the problem that's solving the, until you get to the root problem, it makes everything a lot easier. So your priority should be always moving to see what's causing the thing that's in front of you. Our sales are down. Let's hire more salespeople. That solves the problem in front of you. But if, if it's because the market is past you or your messaging is wrong or whatever, then you haven't solved it for very long. Yeah. So you should keep doing root cause analysis. And that helps you to figure out what are our priorities. And they should, they should be cohesive to our longer term vision. As long as you do those two things, you're in much better shape. Most businesses don't do that. 
That, that makes sense. That, that reminds me of a quote I, I heard from a guy by the name of Mike Matthews. He said, and I'm trying to remember it specifically. He says, we spend too much time on the urgent, unimportant things versus the important, unurgent things. And, and he was referencing business, right? So as you talked about, that problem right in front of us, focusing on that, is a short-term solution. And that's what happens when we're, when we're focused on the un, the important, yeah, the unimportant urgent things, right? That important and urgent. Uh, so yeah, it's usually a two, it's a pretty famous two by two matrix, right? Important, important, urgent, not important, not urgent. And most of the time we spend our time in the important and urgent box. So if everything's important and everything's urgent, nothing's important. Yeah. Yeah. To I figure agree. out what's important and not urgent. That's what a leader should focus on. If you're, if you're leading a team or leading an organization, you should always be focusing on, I would say you should add one more thing, which is important and significant. And significant means if I solve it, it actually helps me for several years to come. It's setting us up. It gives us runway. Those are things that you should focus on more and more often. If you keep focusing on the urgent, and that happens once in a while, you have to do it. COVID was urgent. You had to... Yeah, yeah. Do something. Yeah. But once you get through it, you should say, okay, now that we know this, what are we going to do? How, you know, what are the things that we can get in front of? How, do, how can we make this, this environment of being Zoom and working from home better? What can we learn uh, so we can improve it, uh, et cetera? You know, some people do that, some people don't. But yeah, yes, that makes, that, I, I agree with Mike Matthews. Th- that makes sense. A question regarding growth. So you talked about, and, and I mean, this is pretty common knowledge, but I think, I think the issue is knowing when to do it. So you talk about, you always have to spend in front of growth, right? You got to build the building before you can move the company in. You've got to hire employees before they're actually helping you generate revenue, so on and so forth. The Mm -hmm. question is knowing as you're growing and scaling your business, when to make those moves. Cause it's, it's, it feels like from my perspective, and you're going to have a lot more uh, knowledge around this than I will, but it's kind of this balancing act. Like you don't want to do it too soon to burn up because you might burn up cash, you know, to help you sustain that growth. Sure. But if you do it too late, again, you might be burning up cash because you're trying to put out fires and problems and, and you may lose revenue because you, you, you know, you executed too late. So how do you kind of know, or what's the best way to gauge? Hey, I know here's my three, let's say a three-year vivid vision. This is where we're going. We know we're going to have some growth, but when to execute on spending that capital to infuse that growth? Yeah. So um, here's what I've found is, is most businesses that are small that want to grow, grow. Usually because um, if, you, if you sort of think of it in concentric circles, you got the center circle. And maybe there's, when you start a business, there's maybe one, two to five people that are really sort of running it. But on the outside of that, out, that furthest circle are always three constituencies, the customers, the employees, and then we'll call the rest of it the market, right? Competitors and suppliers and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Now, what happens is when we grow, we add a layer. But remember, those things are always on the outside. Then we grow again and we add a layer and we add a layer. What happens, the reason we grew is because we had no choice but to listen to customers and to listen to our employees and to go to the trade shows and hear what's going on in the market, et cetera. So we were able to make sort of decisions that almost felt intuitive, but it was because you were sort of getting all this information. As we grow and grow and grow, we remove ourselves from that and we don't leave a tunnel open. So now we sit by ourselves in the, in the, you know, the Monday morning senior leadership team meeting and tell ourselves how smart we are and how we know everything. 
but we're just telling each other how smart we are, but we're not actually validating it with the three constituencies that got us there in the first place. So again, is it listening to the market to know when to kind of spend that capital? Is that- yeah, you, have to, you have to be in touch with, because customers needs change. The jobs that they hire, so I'm a big fan of jobs to be done. I don't know if you know what that is, but it's a sort of a, it's a market theory, which says that people don't buy products and services. They hire them to, to do a job for them. And then they fire them when something else better comes along. Yeah. Uh, and that's what happens, right? Is, is that you might have a really good product and it works really well, but something else came along. Um, and a really good example of this would be basically the iPhone, right? Since everyone knows what that is. In 2007, yeah. who knew that we wanted a phone, an internet browser, a music machine, and you know, camera all in one thing? That yeah. put tons of businesses out of business. Nokia basically doesn't exist anymore. Gonna, that's the first name that came to my mind was Nokia. You remember those used to be, I used to be a huge, I had huge a Nokia name. And, yeah. Yeah. So, so that just happens. And that's because we lost, this is blockbuster, you know, and, and Netflix, mm -hmm. this is, you know, name your name, your company that we thought was huge and should never die. And all of a sudden it's, it's either dead or it's in a, IBM no longer sells PCs. Yeah. They're a services organization. Microsoft is not really in the operating system business anymore. They're in a completely different business um, because Balmer took over and just put his head down. He didn't look out. And Satya Nadella came in and said, wait a minute, we got to look out. What do our customers want? Where are, the, where are the needs in the market? What are we good at? We have to become, he, I love one phrase. He said, we were a know-it-all organization. They were very arrogant. They were one of my customers. They were my customer twice. And they were extremely arrogant. Everyone I met, except for a few exceptions, were arrogant. <laughs> And I actually had one guy who I loved. He was a great guy. He had a whiteboard and he would make bets with everyone on outcomes and he kept score. Oh. So he could show everyone how smart he was and how much smarter he was than they were. That was, I think, emblematic of Microsoft. Now they're a learn-it-all organization. He's like, we just have to learn. We have to keep learning, get better and better. We don't know, let's assume we don't know anything, keep learning. And he's turned that business around in a few years and they're even better than they were when Gates had it. So, so that's the thing is, is you lose touch with not only the customers, but also your employees because your employees are close to the market and they're, they're solving the problems and they're making the decisions and we stop listening to them as well because we think, I don't know, we should know the answer. I have no idea. So that's what happens. And that's why I think that, that curve, right? As I mentioned, five years out of business, 50%, 75, you know, 75% yeah. yeah. after, because these things start to add up. Right. And so growing becomes the problem. That, that makes sense. Is there kind of a, a standard rule of thumb that it, when you're in growth mode, as far as, hey, if you outlay this capital for, I don't know, an employee or products or services or whatever, is there kind of a time frame in which, a standard time frame in which you want to be able to make sure that that is now being recouped? So let's, let's assume there's a capital outlay for, uh, let's just say an employee, right? you're going to hire a new team or a, or a new employee. At what point are you like, okay, I'm going to hire them today. I know they're not going to make me any money today, but I want to make sure that they're generating revenue, basically paying for themselves and making the company money in X amount of time. Is there kind of a standard rule of thumb there? Uh, I, no, because it depends on the business. And, it just depends. Yeah. I mean, if you're working for the home shopping network, you're, you're different than if you're working for someone who makes, you know, um, enterprise class ships, Oh, you know, point. I mean, 
So that's a different world. However, I don't quite look at it that microscopically. So there's this, there's this um, metric called the cash conversion cycle, which basically says, how long does it take from when I spend a dollar to when I get it back? And then the thing that you're talking about is in the middle, right? So, so if your cash conversion cycle starts to extend, then you should look inside and say, what's happening? Which of these, which of these key functions? Most, most cash goes through four areas, right? It starts with marketing because you generally spend in front. Then, then there's sales. And there's some sort of operations, you know, manufacturing or whatever, yeah. delivery, and then finance. I mean, you got to get paid. Those are generally the four main ones. And there's usually maybe one or two other different ones, depending on the business. And you just track and you say, how long, how long does it take to go from when I spend money to when I have a qualified lead and hand it to sales? Like, that's 20 days. Okay. Sales takes a month and you add them all up. And that's when you, now you have that and you say, great, let's get to keep an eye on that. And maybe every month or every quarter, you say, how's our cash conversion cycle going? And when it starts to extend, you then look back and say, did we hire wrong? Did something happen in the market? You start to look at that stuff. Now, you can certainly do what you ask. If, so hiring is certainly is super important. And you want to know, you should know, unless you're hiring for a brand new position that you don't have any idea of what it is, yeah. you should have a general idea of, okay, how long does it take to hire them? How long does it take to, to train them? How long does it take for them to start contributing? And how long does it take to do whatever? And that's, so you should have that already for most of your team. But most of us don't do that, right? We don't, we don't get to that level of granularity. We just, yeah. you know, we, we flail about and then we complain and we don't know how to get them from here to here. We don't hire very well. We have a 50% hiring rate on average in the U.S. That means you could pick some really good resumes, pick the top two, flip a coin. And it's just as good as going through a, a rigmarole interview process and all that kind of stuff. It's crazy. It's the same thing. But is that is that because you hired wrong, or is that because the employee is like, ah, oh, this this maybe isn't what I thought it was, and they well, move on? That's yes. So I think that's because you hired wrong, right? Okay. You should hire for two things. You should hire for technical. You should hire for competence. Yeah. And at least minimum competence, and then hopefully they have more. But you should at least have minimum confidence, minimum competence, and then you should hire for fit, meaning. Are they going to be a good teammate? Do they believe what we believe? Right? This is Simon Sinek. Do they believe what, they, what we believe? That's why you have the vision. I always say when you finish your vision, you should hand it to the new employee and say, here, this is what you're getting yourself into. Are you still on board? Yeah, that makes sense. Because sure. uh, most people leave because they're a bad fit. They're Very rarely you're fired because you're incompetent. Because everyone hates you. Or you hate them. <laughs> it, it happens. Right. You leave a bad manager. No, that, that, that totally makes sense. KPIs, key metrics. So you, earlier in our conversation, you talked about oftentimes we track too many things or we don't track the right things. What should companies be tracking at bare bones minimum in order to make sure that they're scaling properly? Yep. So uh, I, I have people go for one metric. We call it the, the most, the profitable metric. What is the X that drives most of your profit? And we try to figure that out. Is it, is it a product? Is it an engagement? Is it a project? Is it, what is it? Is it an order, right? And so whatever that widget thing is, that's the X, that's what you should figure out. And then the metrics that you should, should then have support that, right? So if it's a sales order, then that's going to be made up of different types of products and maybe different services. Those might be the, you might want to bucket those into certain things and say, okay, we're trying to get the profit per order 
to be as high as possible. Now, profit can go along two axes. One is on a percentage basis, but you can also do it on a volume basis, right? If you sell 10 times as much and do a 30% discount, that's still a pretty good deal. Yeah. Right? But if you sell a tenth of that, you probably want to keep your margin at 50, 60% if you do that. So, so you have to balance those things because, again, it's back to cash. If you have the more profit you get, generally that more likely turns into more cash. And that's what you're driving towards. So I always recommend that they do that. They, they look at it. And I found most often I sort of did that marketing, sales, operations, finance thing. Very often the widget is whatever sales hands to operations. Right? When I'm done and this thing's finished, signed or whatever, whatever that thing is, that's usually what your X is and your whole organization focus on how do we optimize that thing. All of your KPI should be around that thing. From, from, a, from, a, from a business growth perspective, yes. Obviously, you're going to have different KPIs for different things and that kind right. of stuff. At the highest of levels, yes. Awesome. This is, uh, Bill, this has been an awesome conversation. Let's talk a little bit about your book, Further Faster. Tell us a little bit about what it is, um, where people can get it, and, and how it can help them uh, grow their businesses. Sure. So uh, Further Faster grew out of basically my 30 years of you know, making tons of mistakes, doing startups and learning from them. And, and then um, my coaching that I've learned over the last four or five years. Uh, and really my business that I've been, my um, business research, I guess, that I've been doing over 30 years. Because I've always been fascinated with why do some businesses just thrive? Yeah. Um, le- I was less interested in why they failed because what I learned was there are so many ways to fail. Right. I actually did it once for about a few months. I just started looking up all the different ways that businesses fail and I get to like 35 and I just stopped writing. There are just so many ways to go out of business, but the few things that really work. So that, that's what my book is about what I already mentioned, right? There are three things you got to do. Uh, performance is a team sport. Make sure that you have a decent strategy that you keep improving by executing on it and learning. And then you drive your business um, growth primarily through a metric of, of cash on how much it costs. It's not a comprehensive book. Like you mentioned, that's scaling up methodology, which is really a, it's a big, thick, dense book that you have to read and it's really hard to get through. I, I'm a huge fan of Pareto, you know, otherwise known as the law of the vital few or the 80-20 yeah. principle, right? Yeah. So my book is about the few things that you could do that make the biggest difference. Thus the, the title, which is Further Faster. Yeah. Uh, it's a super easy read. I've had, I've had hundreds of people have read it and they say, wow, this is like one of the best books, books I've read. It's actually fun to read and it's easy. It also has a corresponding set of exercises that you can go to my website. So it's a do-it-yourselfer. Um, there are 25 or so exercises that accompany the book. And you, just, you can go through the book in any order you want, but generally I designed it to sort of go through linearly. So that book and all, this, all the resources are on my website. I actually wrote the book for the message, not for the money. So you can download my book for free from my site if you want. You can also get it on Amazon or Audible or it's a paperback or a Kindle. Um, it's like eight, ten bucks or whatever it is. And my, my website is www.catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Well, and we'll put that, we'll put that link in, in the show notes. Again, uh, thanks for your time, Bill. I think this is, is super important information, especially now. Like, you know, we're in the midst of this COVID nonsense, pandemic, epidemic, whatever you want to call it. And, and I don't think that we're anywhere close to really knowing what the economic impact is going to be. And so when you look at businesses and one, how do you stay alive? How do you stay in the game, right? It's kind of this, this uh, 
infinite game scenario that, that Simon Sinek talk, talks about. You've got people that are playing to win, which is a finite game. And then you've got people that are playing to stay in the game. And that's, that's the infinite game, right? Is yep. just being able to, to stay in the game. So this is valuable information, not knowing what this economic, um, what the economy is going to be once we kind of come out of this. So any parting words, any last piece of advice you'd like to give to the audience? And also, is there is the best way for them to reach out to you if they want to engage in your services or refer you to, to somebody that might be um, a good fit for you? Is the best way through your website? Is there some yeah, I put other way? Everything's that... on my website. I try to make okay. one place. My phone number's on there, my email address. You can book a, a meeting with me on there, however you want to do it. So I'll tie it to what you sort of ended with is, um, so COVID is, is one of three crises, crises we've had in 20 years. We've already had th- two others. We had 9-11 and we had 2008. COVID is different because there's a health aspect to it, but generally they're the same. And they happen, if you look through history, every six to eight years, something bad happens. It's just the way it is. So you need to be prepared. And that's why, that's why I put the book out. You need to be prepared that it's going to happen. And the best way to be prepared is to be resilient and have cash. And the only way to be that is to be a learning organization, understand and embrace the growth mindset and always trying to get better and, and fill yourself up and your team up and make sure you have enough cash in the bank. I used to say six months or so. I'm, I'm now up to like 12 to 18 months. You're going to have to, I don't know the government is ever going to give us money again like they did. I mean, I got 20 grand for free, basically, right? I filled out a form and like two weeks later, I got $20,000 in my account. That's never going to happen again. You know, I can't imagine uh, even even if they you know, even if when Biden goes in, I don't I don't I don't know that we're going to do it again. So don't count on it. You got to have you got to make sure you do that. So I do have resources on my site for that as well. I, in March and April, I I and about ten or twelve of my friends, coach friends, we wrote up some resources that said it's for COVID, but they're crisis based resources. Right? Here's yeah. what you should be doing. So you can download that. I've had dozens, if not hundreds, of downloads of that. Um, so that's what I would end with: is is be prepared. It's going to happen again. I'll predict, what are we, at 2020? Yeah. Between, 20, between uh, 2015 and 2018, something else is going to happen. It's going to happen. You mean between? So I mean, 2025. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, 2025. 2025, 2028. Sorry. 2028. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm getting old. I don't want time to go that fast. <laughs> hey, Bill, thanks for, thanks for joining us. This has been awesome. Listeners, thanks for spending some time with us today. Uh, this is valuable information. Reach out to Bill, uh, hit his website, download his book, go to Amazon and, and grab a, a hard copy. I think it would be super valuable for you in your businesses to really understand how to, one, protect yourself during economic crises, if you will, but two, be able to learn how to scale your business properly. So until then, we will talk to you next week and build the wealth and lifestyle you deserve. See ya. Hey, real quick. Are you a six or seven figure entrepreneur who is making great money, but like so many other unwealthy successes, you're not seeing your wealth grow? If so, I can help. Head over to nicholascjensen.com forward slash wealth and take my free wealth building assessment now. Learn how to become a strategic investor and start building the wealth you and your family deserve. Again, that's nicholas, the letter C, jensen.com forward slash wealth. We'll see you next time on Unlimited Wealth.